Some movies are highbrow, some movies are lowbrow. Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow. I'm Josh Kirschenbaum. I'm Cooper Gagan. Each week we pick a topic and talk about two movies that fit that topic, one highbrow. One lowbrow. This week the topic is meta horror. Meta horror. Uh meta hyphen horror. Horror oh, movies that are we're meta. putting a hyphen in? We're already we're already beefing. We're already be oh man, we're starting over a hyphen. <laughs> we often argue about punctuation. Yeah, our, our uh, you're a fan atten- of the Oxford comma and I am not. Yes, yes, yes. Although I think we we determined that it's no one's quite sure what to do about the Oxford comma. Yeah, I think that's the entire problem with it, is that yeah. there's no like there's no right answer. Yeah. Uh Meta horror, horror movies that are meta, that make you very aware of the fact that you're watching a movie. Yeah. That are playing with tropes. They're uh, about be- movies, horror movies about being a horror movie. Exactly. On the highbrow side, we have Funny Games, written and directed by Michael Haneke. Uh, and on the lowbrow side, we have Scream, directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson. It's nice when there's not a bunch of teams and they don't have to pronounce a bunch of hard names. Yeah. This there one, we go. This one was good. I had this one ready to go. Craven. And there's like people you can identify and point at as they made this movie. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, major screenwriter, major director, major writer-director Yeah, in these movies. These are both good movies. Yeah, hot take. Yeah, this is a good one. They're... Buckle up, boys and girls. <laughs> boys and girl. <laughs> we just talk about like what meta-horror is beyond what we just did. I guess the winks and nods to the audience about the nature of horror, kind of playing with the tropes of the genre. Yeah. And I guess a, a sense of self-awareness of the characters yeah, about the idea of that they are in a horror movie. Exactly. And, well, there's meta stuff and everything everywhere now. I feel like horror was uniquely set up to kind of be the vanguard of a lot of, like, meta stuff. Because it's very rule-based. It's very rule-based. It's very... And the fan base is very culty and very... And I mean in a good way. And very, like, <laughs> invested in, in the rules. They're very invested in the culture. They were ready to see themselves lampooned more because a horror fan I think was such a much so much more of a distinct thing and also I feel like the fact that it is a kind of inherently lowbrow genre it kind of lends itself to meta humor because meta humor well meta meta humor is kind of well not meta humor but like meta com meta comment meta commentary it's not metomedy because that's a whole different thing as a metosity metosity which is not a word yeah yeah meta storytelling can feel kind of lowbrow weirdly meta storytelling is like a kind of perfect synthesis of like what our show is about because it is both lowbrow and highbrow at the same time. It can be a crutch or it can be like brilliant. You can do Charlie Kaufman, who is really genuinely trying to grapple with like what his role is as a writer. Yeah. Or on the flip side of that, you can have the community episode where, you know, Abed is like filming stuff and everyone's like, oh, I love Charlie Kaufman and everyone's just shouting meta at each other. Yeah. Which is like kind of the lowbrow. That's the cake and eating it too. That's the lowbrow ripping on the highbrow while also kind of doing a slightly highbrow thing. You're basically telling the audience how smart they are. <laughs> right. Yeah. For that's watching your movie. The Dan Harmon problem. That is my theory about why Rick and Morty has like the worst fan base ever is because it's a dumb show that tells its audience that it's smart for watching it. Right. So it, it makes a bunch of dumb people feel smart. Although it, it is also often a smart show. It is very sm- it's a very smart, very smartly written show. But also just because you watch Rick and Morty doesn't make you smart. Yeah. And just and even that just because you're smart doesn't mean you're like a good person. Yeah. <laughs> These, there's a lot of issues at play in the Rick and Morty discourse. But it's unfortunately. Yeah. We shouldn't get into it for another episode. But I, I do think there's this interesting power that shows can have of just being so insanely both popular and destructive. If you are a show that can convince dumb people that they are smart. You will A, be one of the most popular shows on TV and B, harness all of the worst people <laughs> to your end. 
so here's a, a slightly funny story about Scream. Not, I don't know. Here's why when I first time saw Scream, I was slightly Strong underwhelmed, start. By, underwhelmed, <laughs> underwhelmed by it. Okay. It's a movie I like a lot. And I think they're, they it matches up with funny games in ways because I think they're being meta in very different ways. Yeah, they... When I first started, because I was texting you halfway, when I was like two thirds of the way through Funny Games, and I was saying, I think maybe this movie is not quite as meta as Scream, but it is interesting. We can like kind of spin it out and talk about it. And yeah. then the rewind happens. I was, I just was like, oh, this is That's actually. That's what this movie is. is that these are very similar. Right. You know, and like to do the very quick, the high, to me, the big highbrow lowbrow is in Scream, the fact that it is meta helps the characters. Like being aware of the horror movie tropes yeah. is like, a, it's not like a superpower necessarily because the bad guys do it too, mm-hmm. but it does help them. And it does like sort of push the movie in more interesting ways. Whereas in funny games, the fact that they're in a movie it was what dooms them. They literally can't escape because the director is insisting that they're going to die at the end. Yeah. Funny Games kind of positions you on the side of the killers. Yes. Yes. That's sort of been its big... Uh, Which is the main criticism of it, as I understand from you telling me yeah, well, 10 it, minutes ago. Funny Games is a very kind of controversial movie, and Haneke in general, the mm-hmm. director. Although, two-time Palme d'Or winner, obviously, like very like acclaimed guy. Yeah. Not for this. Cachet was a big one. Mm-hmm. Um the White Ribbon was one that he won Palme d'Or for. Uh, Amour is one of the ones that's not like violent. It's just about like an old couple, an elderly couple, and like the woman uh, starts to like deteriorate. Okay. With a stroke. And it's sort of like Haneke taking his very clinical look at this horrible thing style at a very real grounded thing, which is just getting older and your body falling apart. Interesting. Uh, it is a devastating movie. I watched it on a date. <laughs> <laughs> Movies on dates are so tough because. I always get stressed out because I feel like if I pick the movie, it's a poor reflection on me if they do, the other person I'm on the date with doesn't like the movie. But also, I don't want to necessarily just watch something I've seen before. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the big debate on Funny Games is a movie that is very much tries to make you complicit in the violence that's happening. Mm-hmm. And it basically teaches you that in a horror movie, you may think you're on the victim's side, but actually you are on the killer side. Yeah. And you, they're on the, you're on the side of seeing violence at specific times. Yeah. Uh, Peter and Paul, the two murderers in Funny Games. Paul is the one who is constantly turning to camera and telling you this. Yeah. Like he's worrying about murdering happening too early because like it's not time yet. Yeah. Like he's, he's complaining about the structure of the horror movie, not sticking to it yeah. in the movie. Bill Gabiri, the um, really great film critic for Vulture, who is often dropping hot as shit takes, but <laughs> but also I think is a really smart guy. Uh, he wrote the Criterion essay for this. And and this has been, that was sort of his big take. He says, you know, as, as much as we may imagine that we're aligned with the victims, Funny Game dares to suggest that the opposite is true. Even as Paul asks us if we're on the family side, through the very act of addressing us, not to mention his cheerfully conversational manner, he makes us his secret sharers. After all, we've come to watch a thriller, and the villains of shiny, funny games are our shock troops there to do the audience's bidding with just enough plausible deniability to let us continue the fantasy we have nothing to do with the horrors on screen. That's the big meta game. That's the funny game? Of funny. That's, I mean, is it is it funny? That's why it's controversial. Not, it's Some not, people don't not, think it's funny. It's not ha-ha funny, for sure. <laughs> Roger Ebert was, like, furious. He gave it his lowest possible rating and was just like, fuck this. <laughs> this is not... A, like, you may, you can't just be like, oh, isn't violence bad, and then make this movie. That was his big take. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of... It reminds me of the same problem as you often have with an anti-hero, mm-hmm. especially in TV, because I feel like with TV, you spend so much time with the character that you empathize with them a lot, maybe yeah. more than in a film. Mm-hmm. Um, having anti-hero because you are just automatically positioned on the side of the hero just by virtue of being from their like you'll 
you're going to empathize with whoever the POV character is. Right. Because in like the literal sense of what empathy means, you just understand what they're thinking, what their motivations are, what they're going through. So you're going to naturally empathize with them just through like the literal nature of what empathy is. Right. It, it crea- it's, it's why... Uh, film discourse is often such trash. Uh, <laughs> we, we, you have this whole thing of like, how would you, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street stuff, like how, why would we watch a movie about this bad guy? And it's like, well, Wolf of Wall Street doesn't want you to be on this side. Yeah. But then you can say, well, there's some bad fans who are, then you get bad fan theory and all that other crap. Yeah. But like just by virtue of the camera being on their side, being from their POV, you're going to understand their motivations and you're going to be more sympathetic to them and you're going to be in a way rooting for them because they're your hero. Mm-hmm. So then I guess the, the how that applies to funny games is like, are the killers the hero or are the family the hero? Right. It's the question is like, if because we are there to watch bad things happen in a horror movie, aren't the killers the heroes that we're watching? Yeah. Right? Isn't that what we actually want? And then what does that say about us? Which is true of even the the nature of horror film fandom. You're following the killers. Like in franchises, like Freddy Krueger, he's like the element that carries through in all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, right? Yeah. And he's in Scream. He's also in Scream. There's that gender, right? <laughs> Played by Wes Craven, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Or, yeah, so, like, usually the villains are the, if not the heroes, mm-hmm. but they're the stars of these movies. And yeah. they're the thing that you come back for. You want to see them do their thing, and you want to see people fight against it and usually die. Yeah. So, especially in franchises, but also kind of inherently in horror movies in general, you're often positioned on the side of the killer. Right. So then you have this question of, is Haneke actually doing a good job of, like, provoking the audience, of challenging the audience, or is he just sort of fucking with you? Yeah. Right. Like uh, I reached out to Will Quaid, a good friend of ours who is studying film in University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is like one of the best film programs, if not the best film studies program in the world. Yeah. Uh, He's studying with Dr. David Bordwell, who is like, if you don't know, literally wrote all the textbooks about film studies. (laughs) Like, I'm not joking. If you go by like intro to film studies, it's by Dr. Bordwell. Uh, And Will's one of the the smartest dudes I know. I know he's like very much anti-Haneke. So I asked him for a few insights. And he wrote us a very nice, a very bad page and a half, which I can't read the entire page and a half because I mean, but I will <laughs> buckle up, fuckers. <laughs> you thought you're gonna have a good time? You're gonna have a bad time. So I'll come back to these a little bit, but just a few quick quotes I wanted to drop was that basically he says an artist cannot fully come to grips with our attraction attraction to violence, our playing into exploitation, or our need to just our need for justice, which often goes unsatisfied if they stack the deck so fully against the audience. Basically, he says, uh, he, Will argues that these elements of the movie basically dare critics and audience to not like his movies. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's sort of an interesting angle of like, he's sort of preying on a good audience's desire to trust an artist. Mm-hmm. Like, if we're going into the Hanukkah movie being like, okay, you're an artist, you're an interesting movie, let's see what it is. And then the whole movie is like, well, fuck you for watching this movie. Are we really to blame? Like, he doesn't know if I'm watching like... Friday the 13th or Scream yeah. or anything like that. Is there an actual like challenge or is he like just sort of making more of the thing that he's critiquing? Exactly. I guess with any satire, that's a criticism that comes up. Or any meta commentary, really. Any meta commentary, Are yeah. you actually commenting on, are you commenting on a trope or are you just being tropey? Like we talked about that a little bit with the Lord and Miller stuff of like they're so good at leaning into the trope yeah. in a way of utilizing it. But if you're ripping on the trope while doing it, like, is Community, like, this meta-genius commentary on a sitcom, or is it just a really good, well-constructed, like, perfectly constructed sitcom that occasionally jokes about it? Yeah, well, it's like that other thing where it's like, if you, in real life, if you are constantly an asshole as a joke, eventually you just are an asshole because you consistently behave in the manner of an asshole. Right, yeah. <laughs> 
Like if I only rip on my friends, and I'm like, but I'm joking. I actually love them. Like, but if you only say those things, you're just a dick. If you never say anything kind. Yeah. So backing up a little bit to Scream, uh, and we will get. More, I mean, the, the question of funny games, the complicity, and the meta thing. We'll get. We'll get back. Well, to them, let's sure. get into okay. that with Scream because yeah. it's more hidden who the killer is. We're not from their POV. I mean, even in the end, we're not really in their POV. I don't know if we really have any shots where we're just watching the killers do stuff. Right. Um, it's almost can always. You think of any? No, every. It, which is funny because a lot of these movies do that. I mean, very mm-hmm. famously, Halloween obviously starts with the POV uh, murder scene. Yeah. Uh, but in Scream, no, it's always from the victim side, and always the killer like on the on the fringes. Yes. Yeah. So in that way, the movie doesn't really have the same problem of positioning you on the side of the killer. We're always on the side of the victim. Yeah. So that's an interesting point of intersection in these movies. Right. I think Haneke would probably argue that by virtue of you watching this movie, you're actually rooting for the murders to happen, which makes you complicit. You're not you don't actually want Rose McGowan to get out of that garage. Yeah. Now because that, that's why you're now there. that I am like being confronted by this viewpoint, I am like, now I understand the annoyance with the Haneke movie. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. He has this trump card, which is like, no matter what, you are the asshole for watching the movie <laughs> I made. I'm like, but I'm watching your movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly like that was will's point it's like he's daring you to not like his movie yeah is his take i am much more on the side i think hanukkah is brilliant but i also think he's he's having his cake and eating it too yeah like i think it's a movie that really well grapples with what we want from our movies yes and also it's just a really emotional and interesting movie even if you just take it as all real and i think it's also just mechanically a very well constructed movie yes yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't break the rules if you don't know the rules, and yeah. Haneke knows the rules really fucking well. Yeah. They're both movies about rules of horror movies, basically. Yeah. But yes, that is the frustration with him as a filmmaker. As brilliant as he is, is he just daring you to not like the movie? Is, does he just have this trump card of like, uh, well, I guess you're the asshole too? Yeah, it's like if you were having a political discussion with somebody and they're like, but politics is stupid anyway, so like the fact that we're arguing this makes you an, a dumbass. <laughs> or it's like when you're arguing with someone and like you prove them wrong, and like, yeah, but isn't the fact that I could believe that kind of telling of where we are in our <laughs> cultural moment? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, wait, so let's talk about rules, because both these movies are obsessed with rules. Yes. And as Scream constantly points out, so is the genre of horror. Yes. There are these, like, I mean, you can maybe call them conventions more than rules, but they eventually, as the kind of, like, genre of horror has kind of hardened into this very specific thing, they become rules. Right. And then not doing to not do those conventions is to break the rules, which is interesting. Yeah. In Scream, you have this big scene in the middle of the movie where they're at the video store, uh, which I miss. I miss video stores. Yeah. Um, just walking around looking at movies. But uh, yeah, but so Jamie Kennedy uh, in this movie, who for a long time I thought was Seth Green, he's complaining about all these different horror movies. And then he has yeah. the big scene and when they're watching horror movies and he just lays them out. Like, here are the rules. Yeah. Like, if you drink, you're dead. If you have sex, you're dead. Yeah. It's like the sin rule or he calls it something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. You know, if you're the, there's always going to be one last girl. There's going to be one last scare. Like, yeah. It's the conventions, but like conventions turning into rules is very interesting. Yeah. Like it basically takes... You know, a a thing that happens because it's somewhat effective to tell a story into a thing these characters could be trapped by. Yeah, I mean, plot is the same way in a meta level. Because, okay, yeah. if you're getting, like, really fancy, fancy schmancy, you got your, like, Campbellian storytelling where there's these things that stories have in common across, you know, millennia. Yeah. And, but now... When you're like pitching a movie, now there's they become rules where it's yeah. like, oh, on page seven, you have to have this happen. On page 20, you have to have it becomes like Blake Snyder. Right. Where Yeah, it goes from Campbell to Blake Snyder, where it's it's like, it's like oh, this is an interesting thing that happens in storytelling. It's common across all stories, too. Mm-hmm. You have to do these or else you're not doing a good job. And what I think both Scream and Funny Games do really well is by 
turning conventions into rules and by having characters trapped by them, it adds a different level of suspense. Yeah. Like for in Scream, for the first time you're watching it, you're wondering, are these characters going to be trapped by the rules? Yeah. Like right before, right in that scene where he says, if you have sex, you're dead, is when Neve Campbell finally agrees to have sex with Skeet Ulrich. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, is her virginity what's actually in universe keeping her alive? Like, mm-hmm. Is she going to die now because she's broken the rules and the movie has told us she's broken the rules? Right. And that creates tension. In funny games, they are trapped by the rules because, one, because in universe there's a guy saying these are the rules. Yes. But also because you know this is like a meta movie. You know this is funny games. So like he says, he points a camera and is just like, you're, we're, you know, let's make a bet. You're all going to die by the end of the, you know, by 9 o'clock 9 tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. And he looks at the camera and is like, what do you think? Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> and they're trapped because, and you realize they are trapped and they're never going to escape this home invasion because this is a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And Hanukkah has said, like, guess what? I need to, I'm going to show you this on a schedule. And like we said, they even complain when the violence happens too early because they say, like, we're not going to get anything out of them anymore. Yeah. Uh, but that's, which, I mean, also the brilliant thing about funny games is that that's also true on a character level because, like, they're just there to entertain themselves. Yeah. So they're not going to get anything on a, not on a, also on a, what, what's the opposite of metatextual? Just textual? Yeah. On a textual level, yeah. they're not going to get anything because they're there to just, I don't know, get some shits and gigs. Right. Yeah. They're, because, yeah, because they're the audience. They're there to get some interesting stuff out of this movie. So both in universe by, you know, being too violent too early, the, the main character shut down, which is bad for their their fun and games. Yeah. But it's bad for our fun and games because they're not doing anything <laughs> fun or game. And funny. I know that's a thing from, from Blake Cat. Snyder. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine it comes from funny games. It does I, not. because <laughs> I would bet good money Blake Snyder never saw funny games, which is fine. Yeah. Well, it's fun and games, not funny games. I know. I know. It should be funny games. <laughs> that would be really funny. If he named every single part of like the beat sheet after a different movie, uh, that would be too much. For those of Save the Cat is a book that's like basically how to write a screenplay, and he, he put breaks down each section. So like page 25 to like 50 is the fun and games of like, the promise of the premise of the movie. Yeah, it's uh, it's probably the part of the movie that you remember most fondly, generally. It's like, in old school, it's the part where they are just doing frat stuff. Yeah, it's where they are just doing the theme of the movie and the plot before it starts to break down because stories yeah. have to break down. Well, it's kind of like, yeah, it's basically the part of the movie where you're kind of unburdened by plot. Yes. Because you're just doing the thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so getting to the, I want to read another quote from Will. All right. Uh, Our so- savior, Will Quaid. Will Quaid. Uh, again, From the book of Will. I do just want to say thank, thank you to Will for, you know, I d- yeah. we, he did this on very short notice. I love that we notice. have a resident critic. It's great. Yeah. He did this on really short notice, and it's a really good perspective to have. So thanks again, Will. So he said, he I asked him specifically to compare it to Scream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, uh, Funny Games is an extremely influential, and its metatextual elements are quite bracing, but compared to something like Scream, which acts honestly like a genre film and moves like one, the meta-ness of Haneke's work is honestly rather tame. He came down very hard on the side of Scream. Fun. Scream works because the characters are fighting to break the formula of an established system of films and in the end succeed in breaking those boundaries, like some of them. In funny games, there's no hope to break the system of cruelty. If there's no hope to break the system of cruelty, then all the drama is simply void. The meta-cinematic elements of funny games are used to trap its characters and the audience in a fatalistic prison of no choice, while in Scream or in Kieslowski. He also had a section about Kieslowski, which I'm not going to read because no one knows who Kieslowski is, unfortunately, but one of the great filmmakers. Uh, they're used to free the world characters and genre to new ideas. Funny games is more of an exercise in futility that, for me at least, will at least, uh, is artistically and intellectually bankrupt. Interesting. Yeah. So, that, I mean, to take one little part of that out, it yeah. kind of it feels like a, it hinges a bit on the fact that in funny games, the victims never use the meta textual elements yes. to their own advantage. Mm-hmm. 
there's no force in the movie that is trying to break the metatextual elements. Right. They they make no choices. They are just sort of playthings for Hanukkah. And if does does that stop you from getting into it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even in the text of the movie, they don't actually get to make a lot of choices. And then often when they are faced with the kind of fake choices that are presented to them by the killers, they mm-hmm. often kind of don't they don't engage with it. Right. Which is I think with any that's the level of psychological realism that yeah. really makes the movie work. I mean, to be fair, I want to be clear. I just, I, I think Will has really good takes on this. I happen to have slightly different interpretations, but I, I think his, you know, I wanted to bring in the, the, the devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a little less negative on funny games than he is as well. Mm-hmm. But I, it's a very interesting point, and especially compared to Scream, like Scream, they're very much it's metatextualism as a tool in the hero's toolbox, as opposed to a like trap that the villain is continuing yeah and i guess it's that thing where it's like yeah if the villain is aware they're in a movie they're you know invulnerable right they're a superhero yeah it it sort of reminds me a little bit of um the later seasons of game of thrones Mm -hmm. where early game of thrones it felt like the show was not cheating to help the good guys win and Mm -hmm. that made it really bracing and exciting Mm -hmm. that like the bad guys if they were better we're gonna win in the later seasons it felt like the show was cheating to help the bad guys win Right. Like every situation where the good guys would like really fight, the bad guys would really easily like, you know, like Stannis would just like run into some bad weather and then would lose a fight to like Ramsey or whatever because there wasn't time yet. It really was a lot of Ramsey Bolton just like doing nothing interesting or exciting, but always winning every fight. Yeah. Because he was the bad guy and they wanted to make him scary. Yeah. And that's sort of how I think you can sometimes feel with them with a meta movie Mm -hmm. of like if the movie is just stacking the deck like that, then like is it actually compelling? Well, yeah. Okay, so let's look at the rewind. For sure, the biggest metatextual moment. Because yeah. I guess, okay, what are what are the metatextual moments of funny games besides like the whole kind of ethos of it? So the first one is when he winks at the camera. Yes, where they they reveal that the, they killed the dog. Yeah. Uh, then he starts talking to the camera a lot. Yeah. He says, uh, "What about you? You're on their side, right?" When he talks to camera, talking about the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, he constantly says stuff like, "You need to offer the audience something." Yeah. Like referring to an audience to the people. Uh, he says, "We're not up to feature film length." Yeah. At one point. That's funny. Uh, you know, he argue and he even yells at them, you can't break the rules when they shoot uh, Peter. Yeah. And then the big one is he rewinds the movie to stop them from shooting Peter. Mm-hmm. Is that the end of the meta? Like, do they have another metatextual? St- yeah. He looked at the end. Oh, the I'm movie ends with him looking directly at the camera. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's when the last they, when they go to the next house. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you have other weird things that are like not 100% meta, but like. Abiri argues that by not showing you the murder of the kid, of yeah. baby George, that's a meta element of two, because this is a movie that's showing you everything, but by sparing you that, by following Paul to make a sandwich instead, that's basically Paul shielding you from it to help the audience through the scene. Okay, I'll say, like, of those, the banner moment is the rewind. Yeah, that is what makes the movie. Yeah, yeah. that is also, yeah, that is the moment where it goes beyond the characters kind of, like, winking and nodding about it being a movie to them actually like using the superpower of it being a movie to their advantage within the narr- within the plot. Yeah. And what what we were saying before is that that is a moment that completely takes away agency from the heroes. Yeah. Because it's the one moment where they get to, they they succeed against them. They're physically trapped, they don't really have any options, mm-hmm. and they also often there might be sometimes where they could fight back but they don't. Yeah, which is an understandable thing if you're terrified and you're in this situation. A lot of people yeah. wouldn't know what to do. So I'm not saying it's like a no, it makes flaw. Sense. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. But like the one time they fight back and are successful, it doesn't matter 
Yeah. Because of the superpower. Right. He just grabs the TV remote, rewinds the scene, and then when she goes for the gun, she just pushes it away. Yeah. It is also interesting how easy it is for him to stop her. He yeah. just grabs the gun. And that's, I mean, that's what makes the movie so scary. One of the things that makes it really scary on an actual textual level is just how fucking calm Peter and Paul are. The whole, Paul especially. Yeah. Uh, really incredible performance. Uh, actor's name is Arno Frisch. I don't know if you know if it's a hybrid lowbrow, but like compare the acting styles of Peter and Paul to uh, Skeet Ulrich and Matthew Lillard. Oh, because they're just like unhinged the whole time. They are like screeching in that last scene when they're doing their big we're the bad guy scene. Yeah. But like they're kind of similar characters. They're both like move. They're both movie fans mm-hmm. who are kind of like into the idea of being killers in a movie. Yeah. But one of them are like these like absolute like well Skeet Ulrich is like kind of like teen sex symbol guy. Yeah. But also like they're like covered in blood, sweating and screaming and freaking out <laughs> yeah. about how like crazy they are. Yeah. But like and Peter and Paul are just sort of like very calm. Like they're just like kind of right wing trolls. They're just sort of like yeah getting on people's cases about weird shit and poking them and constantly making fun of them in the most like. Not even deadpan, but like very like composed way. Yeah, and it's funny because there's this point where you wonder is like, are they doing this on purpose or are they just sociopaths? Yeah, is, I, the answer is kind of both. Mm-hmm. But it's also yeah, they're doing this as a result of just being bored essentially. Yeah, and having nothing to do. But because there are people that are so bored that they could be led to doing this thing, doing this thing also doesn't really affect them very much. So there's right. just no there's no way for them to be happy. Yeah. Uh, speaking of just like why they're doing it, because this is a really interesting connection to the movies, the the motivations of both the killers in right. Scream and Funny Games are not dissimilar. Skeet Ulrich basically says, why, like, why not? Yeah. Like, what's our motivation? They say, like, motivations are lame. You don't need motivations in horror movies anymore. Right. Like, they get in their case from that metatextual level. And, like, we, we just want to do it because it's cool. Mm-hmm. But then he also has an in-universe reason. He very quickly drops it that her mom was sleeping with his dad. Right. And his family broke up because of that. Which they drop in, like, they have, like, a really long buildup of there's no reason to have a motivation. And then, like, in one line, it's like, oh, but also this. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting move because it's characters who are loudly saying they don't have a motivation, but they actually have subconscious motivations that they can't get away from. Yeah. Which is kind of how people, more like how people are in real life. Right. But in funny games, they actually like proactively fuck with them on the motivation they tell multiple they do the joker thing yeah they tell multiple stories about their sad lives and why they're doing it and then at one point he just i think he looks at the camera or just tell me he's like why, why does it care you know none of this isn't true this is true yeah like, he's just like very much like yeah all we're just lying to you to fuck with you like you just need something yeah they both acknowledge that the motivation side of horror movies is often incidental i i just finished writing a horror movie with my writing partner mm-hmm. michael slater who is a guest on the show yep horror is this interesting thing to write because you have like a secondary motivation for the movie which is just that the horror people want to see horrific things happen mm-hmm. and they want to be scared on the other hand if you have a movie that's just scares it's not interesting so you have to like work in a plot and character motivation stuff but yep. in the end that's secondary to just the pure desire to be scared yeah it's very similar to comedy in that way, in that you're trying all of it's in service of this other thing that it often is at odds with narrative storytelling. Mm-hmm. But you also have to have narrative storytelling, or else it's just garbage. Right. So it's this weird seesaw. I mean, it, I'm trying to think now of like what are the great horror movie like motivations of great horror films. I mean, oh, okay. You want to just do like a run through of like big, the big baddies? I mean, so my favorite horror movie is The Thing. Okay, yeah. And the thing's motivation is that it's a monster. Yeah. And it does bad things. Yeah, which it's, is... <laughs> like, it's basically Jaws. Yeah. With the thing, Although the thing, there's some argument about, like, how how sapient it is or not. But, like, basically, it's Jaws? just... No, th- the thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but basically, the thing just wants to, like, consume people. Yeah. And that's... It's a... It's like a virus. Yeah. 
Jaws is a shark. Yeah. Jaws is actually weirder that the shark is going after people. Yeah. The shark actually has made have a little more like going on upstairs on the thing. Yeah. Like the thing I'm like, okay, I get it. Jaws. I'm like, why does shark hate this boat? <laughs> so, so let's talk about Wes Craven's movies. Yeah. I mean, the big one, obviously nightmare on Elm street. Mm-hmm. Freddie's motivation was, well, he was a, um, he was a child abuser who they killed and then he came back. Yes. So his motivation was already evil, and then it was like revenge. But that kind of just comes down to he's a monster. Right, he just is a monster. Yeah. Funny, Michael Myers, not a West Craven movie, John Carpenter, mm-hmm. also no, I don't know if they've dug into his backstory in later movies, but in the original Halloween, it's just that he's evil. He also motiv- motiveless. Because he came from that mental asylum or something like that. So the opening scene of Halloween, spoilers, fuck you, is uh, my baby Michael, well, not baby, like he's like 10 or something, yeah. kills his... Uh, his mother or sister, I forget. Yeah. And then he gets put in the mental asylum, and then he escapes, and then, then he escapes as a grown-up, and then that's the movie. But yeah, but he's just there because he kills people at random. Right. So the, the the psychologist basically says, like, yeah, I sat with him, and there's, like, nothing there. It's just pure evil. Like, it's yeah. weird how often there actually isn't a motivation for horror movies. But I guess uh, those movies... But that's kind of a... It's a response to movies often having... Th- those lack of motivations are responses well, the to Halloween movies. Halloween for sure, yeah. Yeah. The thing, not so much. That's just... But that's just side... Some horror movies are just about there's a beast. Yeah, I mean, because that that's all that's like a different that's kind of the man versus nature yeah. plot. So in terms of actual motivations, off the top of my head, you got Friday the thirteenth, which as they mentioned in Scream, is it's Jason's mom getting revenge. Yeah. So, you know, revenge. Yeah. That's a motive. Yeah. Which is the motivation in Scream, sort of. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, it depends if you believe if what his actual motivation is. Yeah, because you also be like, he's just a psychopath and he worked backwards from there. Yeah. I'm looking at Time Out, 100 Best Horror Movies. We're just going to run through like, I don't know, 10 or something. Quick motivations. Let's go. Exorcist. It's a demon. It's a demon. Demons are bad. Yep. The Shining. He's crazy. Uh, He's a failed writer. He's a failed writer, but he's going insane because the the hotel... The hotel's what? evil. I mean, it's all a subtext for like Stephen King getting sober and like the frustration and mad- manicness of that. Right. But I guess in the book, there's probably more to it. But it is yeah. just... It's an evil fucking hotel. <laughs> yeah. So it's evil. So we got two for motivelists. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Well, they, they uh, come from a fucked up family. Yeah. At least there's like a reason why he's doing stuff. Two to one for motiveless. Okay. Yeah. Alien. It's a, it's fucking, a beast. It's yeah. a fucking alien. Yeah. Man versus beast. Psycho. Okay. There's a lot, a lot going, of stuff going there's on. There's a lot Psycho. going on there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the movie with the most reasons why a killer is killing they people. They sit down and explain it to you at the end. Yeah. I mean, I would say my my criticism of psycho is that it is kind of lazy sh- shitty freudian psychology <laughs> yeah. and that it's not like a good reason for somebody to start killing people in a movie because it's just like dumb but there's definitely a explanation for it yeah uh what else you got the thing it's a big monster it's a big monster uh rosemary's baby lots lot of, of motivations. motivations yeah yeah okay. well they it's w- funny because it, they are in service of just an evil thing which yes is the devil yeah but those people, they want to bring back the devil. Yeah. And they bet they have like specific policy goals they want the devil to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. Like they want to like reform healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> Though they say that. They just want to cut Medicaid. Yeah. <laughs> they just don't want to pay taxes. That's always what it is. It's low taxes for rich people. That's always why these people are summoning the devil. That they, <laughs> they say they want all this like shit, but they really just don't want to pay taxes. <laughs> what else is on the list? Halloween. Halloween. Motiveless. Yeah. Dawn of the Dead. There's zombies. Motiveless. Jaws. It's a fucking shark. So we're seven to three for the top ten in terms of no motive to yes motive. Night of Living Dead, they're fucking zombies. zombies. Yep. Don't look now. There's, uh, I mean, that's, that's sort of complicated. That's a weird one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a really hard movie to track. What's going on? I don't know. Yeah. That's not really what that movie's about. Yeah. It's not that it doesn't. It's just that I don't get it. 
<laughs> Good movie, maybe. Yeah. Probably. Uh, the Innocence. There's a lot of motives there. Carrie. I mean, she's has the best motive. Yeah, everyone's mean to her. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like like all these other ones are like, someone was mean to me and now I'm going to kill other people. Carrie, at the very least, is killing the people who are mean to her. Yeah. I'm not condoning it. Yeah. I'm just saying it tracks. Uh, the Fly. I mean, I skipped a couple, but The Fly. Well, it's that he's turning into a fly. Well, it's all well, he has but, reasons but, like, the reasons for turning into a fly. It's yes. kind of all about like scientific research, and you know, yeah. we don't have to go through more shit. At least all a lot of the classic horror films are kind of motiveless, kind of motiveless, which is kind of tipping its hat to what I what I feel like tipping its hat to what I said about people aren't really there for motives or plot. Yeah, but you do want them to have to be. You want there to be something. You need a framework, otherwise you're just watching a bunch of scenes. Right. Otherwise, you're watching funny games. Yeah. But funny games is aware of that. And like that's sort of the whole point. So let's talk about how much Funny Games even has a plot. It's a family of three, uh, mom and dad and a little kid, Peter and Paul, two dapper young men wearing white gloves, white shirts, white short shorts. Uh, and they just come in and take the prisoner and, and club the dad's knee and they just start playing weird, horrible games. In terms like on a plot level, like there's not an overarching scheme to escape that the family is trying to do. We don't have building blocks that we're putting together all throughout Act 2 for a big like escape sequence in Act 3. Right. There are small discrete moments where they try to fight back and mm -hmm. inevitably fail. Right. Except for the one time when they succeed and then get rewound. Right. And the movie itself is like, nope. Yeah. So as much as there is plot, it is the killers. Is mm -hmm. that they're, you know, they case the house, they do the thing, they do this thing. Then there's the funny games in Act 2, which is like all the shit they're doing. Right. And then there's the false defeat. When the false defeat is for the killers because they get killed. Yeah. And then they find the solve or they rewind it. And then they get, and then there's the act three where they succeed. Yeah. They're, they're the but, heroes of the movie. Yeah, I know. That's why it's such like a fucked up, really brilliant movie. For as disturbing as it is, there's not a lot of on-screen violence. Yeah, let's talk about that. The first one that I noticed was that there's the part, there's a horrible scene where the two killers, they force the female victim to strip in front of them mm -hmm. just to break her down emotionally. Yeah. But it's a close-up on her face. Yeah. And we never actually see her naked. So right. it becomes a very interesting choice. Mm -hmm. And it's more about like the emotional impact it has on her and how horrible this thing is. But... It's not. It's weirdly not being gratuitous because the audience doesn't need to see it. Exactly. It's it's a movie that is much more interested in emotional anguish than depicting specific like violence. Yeah. Which I think is interesting, especially because Scream is so interesting because you know, but the violence is so like, it's very in your face. Mm -hmm. The opening scene, obviously, that just shows a guy with his fucking bowels like ripped out. Yeah. It is a very graphic movie, but also at the same time way less disturbing. Yeah. Well, to me, at least. Yeah. I So the element of like how Funny Games is able to be disturbing, it really does like just focus on the toll that this has. The same thing with when the kid dies. Yeah. Also something not depicted, but you get the aftermath. Yeah. The aftermath is like... That horrible crying. Yeah. It's it's exa exhausting, truly, just like people who are at the end of their rope, like sobbing. Mm -hmm. You have a very, very long still shot. Like one of the great like film compositions of like it's just a single image mm -hmm. where George the kid is like dead in the corner. The father is like all on the ground still, and it's just Anna's face. Yeah, for so long. Yeah, this movie has so many shots that are just locked in wide shots that it's they're so still that it feels like a still image for yeah. a long time. Yeah, it's like he's not getting because camera work and editing can like help you mm -hmm. as an audience. It can get you through a scene. Yeah, and I think when he chooses to do that, like cutting away. And when he chooses to make you look at it is really 
particularly calibrated. Yeah. Whereas in Scream, it's like not. It's just a lot of camera work, a lot of cutting. They're action sequences mm-hmm. more than they're horror sequences. I'm not saying it is bad. Again, Scream fucking rules. Yeah, I love Scream. Yes, but that's a highbrow low bro. <laughs> yeah. The killing sequences in Scream are, you know, fun, in air quotes, or that they're mechanically interesting. How yes. about that? More, yeah. We won't say fun. They're like very mechanically interesting. They're entertaining. They're entertaining. Like the garage door set piece. That's a unique way to kill someone. And it's also, there's a lot of moving parts, both literally and figuratively. Yeah. It's moving around a lot in the garage. And then she tries to escape. And then it basically you have like, it's like a mini three act structure with this fight. Yeah. Where we have like false victory basically and then defeat. Yeah. It's, it's a whole, they take you on a journey. Which I guess, again, <laughs> If we're, if we're saying that's a three-act structure, it is, again, from the point of view of the killer and that it is false defeat than victory. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> there's no such thing as false victory than defeat. <laughs> right. I mean, a little bit. <laughs> but in a traditional three-act structure, it's not, not false usually. victory than defeat. That's yeah. like a turning it on, on its head. So here's a uh, slightly funny story about Scream. Okay. Um, first time I saw Scream, I was a little underwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And the reason I was a little underwhelmed is because two reasons. One is because I saw Scary Movie 3 before Scary Movie and because I saw Scary Movie before Scream. <laughs> Okay. Because Scary Movie is just Scream. Incredibly close to Scream. Yeah. But Scary Movie 3 is a bunch of different movies. Yeah. And not super close to any of them. Mm -hmm. So when I saw Scary Movie, I was like, oh, I guess this is probably not what Scream's like, but very loosely Scream. And then when I saw Scream, I I was surprised by like, oh, I've I've seen this movie. (laughs) 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 Like there's no twist. Even the motivation of the killer in Scary Movie is actually kind of close. Basically, he's mad that she's not having sex with him. Right. That's like one of the motivations in Scary Movie, from what I recall. And that's sort of the, the... I, I, my, my little like, head canon is that Skeet Ulrich's real motivation is just that he hasn't gotten laid. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like a huge plot point in Scream. Yeah. But anyway, so that's why like when I saw Scream, I'd actu- I, I did not realize that I'd seen the movie. Yeah. Except in like a parody form. <laughs> but it is so ridiculously close. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny that Scary Movie is a close parody of Scream because, because Scream is so metatextual that it seems like a weird movie to make a parody of. That's why I was so shocked. I'm like, it's like, how can you make a parody of a movie that itself is constantly almost, like just on almost the line parody. to parody yeah. of horror movies? Yeah. Because it feels, yeah, because I could see that like watching Scary Movie, you would think all the jokes, like all the metatextual jokes, are like, oh, this must be like the interesting, like this must be like the funny take on this serious movie. Right. And it's not. That's just the stuff from Scream. Right. Scream often is not a very serious movie. Like there's like a handful of scenes where it actually does take the drama seriously. And yeah. it's usually around uh, Sydney, like Neve Campbell's character. Yeah. But mostly it is like very goofy, a very goofy movie, very like heightened, <laughs> very like ridiculous and fun and like relentlessly entertaining yeah i mean i like scary movie but i'm surprised it was such a big hit given that they're parodying a better more entertaining funnier movie yeah i guess like you know if you just make a good movie again people will like it (laughs) you want to actually one thing that kind of might be another point of intersection between these movies in like the role of the viewer in creating horror Mm -hmm. uh we can talk about courtney cox's character Yes, that's a good point. Who is a reporter who is following these murders in a way that feels very exploitative and is also kind of, I don't know if they textually say in the movie, but you could argue that she is encouraging the killers because they know they will get attention from it because of her. Yeah, that, okay, so that's sort of, I had that note here in that the one of the themes of both these movies is com- the complicity of viewers in mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. But Scream does not grapple with the complicity of horror movie viewers in terms of violence. Yeah, it's like true crime viewers. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. In the movie, there's like a true crime lady, Courtney Cox. Yeah. And it's like very much anti-her for like encouraging this. Yeah. And like the people who are gawking at real pain, like yeah. real life pain, which is actually like a 
a take that is less philosophical but more practical in especially where we are now yeah where everybody is fucking obsessed with true crime all the time right a thing that i hate <laughs> both the obsession and true crime i'm like really not a true crime although guy. it is funny because it's just always been a constant in history <laughs> okay yeah okay that's fair it's just a thing i hate about the world yeah, yeah like pollution it feels like it's more popular than when we were kids for sure but that is really interesting that scream understands viewer complicity of violence in yeah. universe but never really talks about it as a theme of horror movies. Yeah. She's interesting because she, by like reporting on it and saying, this is the thing that we want to care about, you are like perpetuating this pain. You could make the argument that she is the director. In so much Scream is a movie about horror movies. Yeah. You know, Courtney Cox is the stand-in for Wes Craven himself. Because she's someone who is just finding real pain and turning it into entertainment. And in a way that you have, she has to be very clinical, like in a way that Hanukkah is as well. Of yeah. Like, if you are, if it is your job to turn pain into entertainment, you cannot be emotionally affected by the pain. Or just in universe, it's just good satire of local news junkies. Yeah, <laughs> like like there's there's a good textual in universe discussion to be had. Yeah, but there is a meta element as well. I love to talk about the tone of these movies, but specifically Scream. Okay, all the Neve Campbell stuff is done very straight faced and emotionally. Yes, I think there's a her and Drew Barrymore are the two like centers of earnestness mm -hmm. in this movie and everything else is very goofy and meta yeah right like neve campbell is giving a really good really human real performance in this movie yeah and she's genuinely really like disturbed she's genuinely really upset about her parents she's genuinely really worried and the only other time you have that in the movie is drew barrymore who starts out very meta and silly and then has a really sad like her parents looking for her is like a really sad emotional yeah. moment that the movie didn't need to do actually weirdly i'd say courtney cox's character is also pretty straight down the line like she's not a funny character really. yeah other than the scene where she's hitting on david arquette yeah she's very straight she's very like straight laced yeah but she's also like hitting on him in order to accomplish her kind of like nefarious goal right yeah it's funny all, yeah. all i'm saying is that that's yeah, yeah really funny. that's true <laughs> Now I'm wondering, is it like almost all the female characters in the movie are like the more straight laced and all the male ones are the goofy dipshits who are like doing the meta horror, meta horror stuff? That's actually kind of dead on. I mean, Rose McGowan is not the most serious character in the movie. But like, she's she you know, like, being supportive of her friend and she's also not participating in the meta horror elements as much. There is a really. Okay, so I had this, too. I think there is a really interesting gender commentary in, yeah. bo in both these movies. But I want to talk about Scream first. Half the people in this movie are having fun about how crazy this fucking movie they're in is. Yeah. And it's the men who don't have to take it seriously. Yeah. <laughs> they don't care. It's kind of like, it's a classic dichotomy of like, the guys are just off in the corner doing bits and slapping each other in the balls and the girls have to like, actually like hold everything up. Right. The girls are doing the work to like hold the world together while the men are just like, <laughs> yeah. And I guess, yeah, you can make a, I guess this is kind of what you're just saying, but it's yeah. like. Because the men aren't the victims of these killers as often. Yeah. They're allowed, they're given the free reign to have this goofy meta commentary. Yeah. And to not care. Well, I mean, if you think about it this way, like, you know, Scream being a horror movie about horror movies, most of horror movies are about men killing women. Yeah. Like for the, that, and it's always like the last girl, a lot of girls being killed. The final girl. Yeah. The final girl. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is, maybe that's the commentary that's happening here in Scream of that, like, what must the experience of being a fan of horror movies have been like for the, you know, 30 years before Scream? I think now there's a lot more uh, gender equality in horror movies, a lot yeah. more movies that are very smart about gender. But 1996, when this yeah. movie comes out, if you were a woman who wanted to watch a horror movie, you were going to watch a woman get killed by a man. Yeah, and if and you're it, a man, you're probably not internalizing that. Yeah, and it's a funny thing where it's like, sure, 
there's a lot of movies where there's a group of teenagers and like with men, with uh, both men and women, but then by the end of it, there's usually the final girl. So for you know at least a third or more of the movie, you're only watching violence be enacted on a woman. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a point that I think now that you've brought it up, I think Scream gets at really well without really bringing it to the forefront of them talking about it that much. Just by the virtue of the fact that the boys get to have fun about the fact that it's a horror movie and the girls are getting fucking murdered. Yeah, the girls are really busy trying to deal with murder and grief and, and traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the, there are boys who literally mock them for that, for take for having emotions. Like there's the whole sequence of the men, of those other teenage boys dressing up as Ghostface. Yeah. Ghostface ghost killer. <laughs> it's tough, but yeah. Uh, and like just running through the hall just to scare her just because they're dicks. Yeah. Yeah. There's no there's no women doing that in the movie, at least. Yeah. I mean, there's women who are like, like Caddy. Yeah. There's a scene where she's in the bathroom. Right. And they are like saying like, oh, I bet she made it up and she's crazy. Yeah. I'm not saying all women are in, are perfect and all men are bad. I'm no. just saying in this, this movie understands a certain. But, but that is not a meta textual. They are not making meta textual commentary. No. In the movie, which no. is interesting. I would just say, I think. If for a men, there is a greater. It is easier to have a like remove. Yeah. From this sort of violence. Well, when violence affects you less, it's a lot easier to be detached from it. Yeah, you can intellectualize it, which yeah. is what they actually do in the movie. Yes. They talk about the rules and yeah. how like goofy it is. And yeah. Whole, like, and yeah. not the emotions of it is scary to have someone trying to kill you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but doing a highbrow lowbrow, getting back to funny games a little bit. Uh, there's also some gender stuff in funny games. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's done in a way that's like, I think just as much under the surface. Mm -hmm. Like a plot of the movie is kind of the same thing of Anna has to carry the weight of the family. Yeah. And, um, George or Georg, Georg, uh, I'm going home, George. Yeah. Uh, like doesn't. And like, it, you can see it just sort of killing him over time that he's like been put aside with it. There's like an emasculation element to the whole movie. Yeah. Um, I think really, um, comes together at that scene where after uh, baby George dies, mm -hmm. like she has to literally carry him because his knee is broken. Yeah. And it's this like devastating, super long take of her just like struggling to keep his weight up and he's like kind of stumbling over and stuff. She's able to do more. She's able to be more active. Yeah. He's kind of shut down completely. Yeah. Both physically and emotionally. Right. And there's, yeah, there's the, there's the in universe reason of like that his knee was clubbed. Yeah. And, but look also she has to, like it's just the weight of it is on her. The weight of the family is on her mm -hmm. in a way that feels like it has to be an actual commentary on like gender roles. Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's that really, really devastating moment where like he's like, oh, I'll stay here and try and call for help. Mm -hmm. And so she has to like blow dry the telephone and he's just sitting there. Right. Like, they've just had this and he's just sitting there while she's like doing basically chores for him. Yeah. Neither one, they both kind of realize it. Neither one of them can say it. Fucking rough. Yeah. Yeah. Not related to gender stuff, but yep. the whole thing of the two cars going by and her oh. avoiding the first car and then not avoiding the second car and then being punished for... Basically, it's kind of like Gambler's Fallacy yep. a little bit. Where um, gambler's fallacy is a it's it's like a so it's like a psych psychological thing that happens in gambling where you expect past random events to affect the outcome of future random events even though they're all equally random. Yeah. Whereas like a car goes by, she doesn't stop it because she's not sure if it's the killers, yeah. and then it goes by, she sees that it wasn't them. Yeah. And then she stops the next one, and then it is the killers. Yeah. Because we're in this fucking movie where we're trapped forever. Right. And it, I mean, you see that, and you, I guess, to me, my thought is like, if she had stopped the first car, they would have been in that one. Yeah. It just they were in whichever car she would have stopped. Yeah, that's the movie we're in. But that's funny because that's like that is like a meta meta 
analysis of the movie where it's just like she has to go back to the house, right? Yeah. We know the killers are coming back because they just leave. Yeah. Like, yeah, they they shoot the kid because the kid runs away and they're like, it's too early. We've got to fucking bail. Yeah. And then they just come back and finish up their business. Yeah. Uh, man, fuck those guys. Yeah, they're the worst. <laughs> Bad guy. Don't real, home invade. Real Leopold and Loeb energy from these fuckers. Yeah. I, I had to note that there's sort of a kids of today panic in both the movies, but okay. it's really in screen. There's yeah. a lot of them talking about how crazy kids are these days. The sheriff explicitly says it. Yeah. And, you know, there's this whole, like, these are the kids raised on horror movies. How fucked up would that be? Right. Although they do, even then they say, don't blame the movies. They just make us more creative. It doesn't make psychos. That's really funny. Yeah. But in uh, in funny games, it's there just on a, the level of they are two young kids. There's never really, like, a generational divide there. It seems to be something that is on Scream's mind, at least as a joke, but not at all in funny games. Because Georg doesn't even necessarily address them in kind of like a in like an elder to younger way right he mostly deals with them as i mean it's kind of as equals in whatever whatever that means yeah like he doesn't he's not like whatever whatever is sick about your generation is was making you do this to us it's mm-hmm. more just like why are you personally doing this right funny enough they don't really behave like kids everyone in scream the teenagers are like we're fucking teenagers yes we read we're laughing we're they're specifically very irreverent and not taking things seriously <laughs> which is funny because they're all like 25 and twi- they and all they look they, 25 no, no, yeah they all look like a hard 25 <laughs> and they're acting like four-year-olds <laughs> whereas in funny games like they're kind of their power and how they get in is that they act like grownups. Their politeness is what gets them in the house. Right. Like yeah. it's not if they were just like if they were they're dressed like, like Skeet Ulrich and acting like Matthew Lillard, they yeah, they'd maybe be like, we're get not the fuck a, out of here. Like, yeah, can we get some fucking eggs? They would have been like, no, but they're just like, yeah, hey, we're staying next door. Can we have some eggs? Yeah. And then that becomes like the most horror that whole egg sequence. Well, that is the most. Stre- I mean, what well, is a very stressful part of the movie. When you're watching those things, you, you part of the thing of horror movies is you think about how you would get out of the situation, mm-hmm. and you just realize like politeness is so deadly. Yeah, because you just feel obligated to deal with this fucking bullshit from people. <laughs> that whole sequence where you know he asks for eggs, he drops he drops them on purpose. He's cleaning up. They like fuck him up. They fuck up again, and they're just really insistent on the. And he just kind of stands there looking at her like, well, you you could still give me eggs. Yeah. Like, she could just tell him to fuck off, but, like, she would she kind of be the bad guy? Like, I say no, but, like, politeness is kind of a power that traps you. Well, and then also, if you're not in a horror movie, usually that's just a guy being a doofus. And if you are like, get out of my house, this is creepy, you yeah. are the asshole. Yeah. Because it's unlikely that he's there to just murder you for no reason. Right, yeah. And they say they're with the neighbors. She doesn't want it to be a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, like, easier to just give this guy's eggs. You don't know they're in a horror movie. And most horror movies don't have this. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you are in a horror the the rules of horror movie have nothing about eggs. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and he's just like such a bumbling idiot throughout the movie. Oh, uh, uh, Peter. Yeah, Peter. The, yeah, Tubby. Tubby. Yeah. Paul is constantly belittling him. They have a very strange relationship. Yeah. Paul is like the leader. Yeah. And he's making fun of Peter for being like a little tubby. Yeah. And for just like occasionally fucking up. But like that never gets resolved into anything. They yeah. never turn against each other. I was expecting the fact that he was constantly belittling him to play into the solve at the end, mm-hmm. that somehow they would get him on their side or he would snap or something would happen as a result of that. Mm-hmm. But he's just kind of a dick, but they're, they, it doesn't affect the plot at all. No, yeah, they, like, they leave, they come back. Like, the movie ends and they're just like talking about a movie. Yeah. Just like being friends. 
Yeah. Yeah, like they're on the same side again. The movie they're talking about, is that a real movie? I don't think so. Yeah. I think it's just meant to be... That is such a metatextual moment. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, Abiri points that in his article that like them talking about a movie at the end like is what really um, glocks in the fact that they're meant to be like the viewer, basically, because yeah. they're movie fans. They're they're also horror movie, or movie yeah. fans. Yeah, and they're moving yeah. on to the next movie as yeah. soon as they're, they've gotten what they wanted, and they're not necessarily grappling like like a bad well not a bad fan but like a uncritical fan yeah they're just moving on to the next role even like moving on to the next house yeah and they're not necessarily grappling with the emotional stakes of what they have just done what has just happened they're just there for this ancillary thing which is violence yeah the movie's over time for, for another yeah, one. they're uncritical fans yes yeah yeah in a weird way that's I mean, can you compare that to uh, Lillard Norwich and, and Scream? Because they're like, they're horror movie fans and they're into being horror movie fans. And they're like excited about it. But they're very emotional. The difference is when they have to stab each other, they start to get scared by it. Yes. They stop, They lose their detachment. Although, as much as they ever had detachment, because they're always just fucking unhinged. Right. But they, they lose their, isn't this cool that we're doing this energy when they get stabbed and they start to say, oh this actually hurts a lot. I think you stabbed me too hard, too much. Right. But just, yeah. Cause in, yeah, in funny games, the only time they get upset is when they right before the rewind and he's not even upset that his friend died. He's just like, you broke the rules. Yeah. Whereas yeah, scream is actually the more grounded one. Yes. They, what makes them start to fall apart is they get stabbed and it hurts. They have to face consequences. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I know we talk about this a lot that like realism or groundedness is not a one-to-one in highbrow or lowbrow. It can be either one. Yeah. You know, like in like a, in a really serious historical drama, usually the realism is the highbrow, but in something like this, the lack of realism or groundedness is the highbrow. Yeah. I feel like on a, in, a, in a highbrow movie, realism is just, it's like, a, it's a lack of dedication to just pure entertainment. Yeah. And then in lowbrow, it's a lack of non-narrative storytelling. (laughs) Do a little actor talk? Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's start with funny games because I think it'll be quicker because we don't actually know these people. Uh, Susan Lothar as Anna. She's very, so good. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, The the shot, when she kisses Georg goodbye Mm -hmm. uh, to like go like find help is like such a like devastating, truly emotional I mean, Will pointed out how like Haneke has incredible talent with actors, mm-hmm. but it's that level of like really intense emotional realism is that makes the meta stuff work as well as it does. Yeah. Uh, Ulrich Muhe, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, as Georg. He's great. Uh, he's also in The Lives of Others, a really great uh, spy thriller uh, okay. from 2006. Yeah. Uh, most famous probably for winning Best Foreign Film over Pan's Labyrinth that year. Oh, which interesting. Is a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, but really good movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's just really good, but it's a very understated performance because he's kind of just like broken down emotionally the whole time he's he's pretty shut down he's pretty quiet yeah and he's pretty like physically inactive yeah he is absolutely put to the side this is in a weird way it's a ve- this is a very traditional horror movie it's, it's the fi- it's the final girl yeah it's all about the women and also the the son gets a lot of the kind of like mechanical plot elements of the trying to escape the killer's part he's he's the first one to leave the house the whole like sneaking through the house scene where the killer's following him which yeah. feels more like a traditional horror movie mm-hmm. is with the child Oh, yeah. And also, I love this because, I don't know, he's a really good child character to me mm-hmm. because he's very smart, active. It's not, they're not relying on him being a kid in order to be his downfall. Yeah. Like, it's, he, being a kid is his downfall because, you know, he's like small, he's physically smaller. Mm-hmm. He, he's like, doesn't have quite the same toolbox as an adult. Right. But he doesn't act like an idiot for no reason. Yeah, exactly. We're not using the fact that he's a kid as like an excuse for him to do dumb things. Yeah. He like immediately goes off to their house, finds the gun, tries to make tries to do everything. Yeah. Tries to shoot the tries guy. Tries to shoot him. He actually pulls the trigger. It's just he doesn't have the bullets because yeah. 
it's a movie and Paul has thought of everything. Yeah. I feel like I've seen that move of the villain telling the hero to cock the gun in like that extremely confident way. Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting trope that I just see a lot. Yeah. Although I like in this one, often you have the like, are you going to shoot me? Then like they don't have the balls. And this one, the kid's got the balls just in the yeah, bullets. And it's just that he knows that it, the shotgun's empty because he shot it. Right. Yeah. Um, Arnold Frisch as Paul, talked about already. Incredible. Yeah. One of like, the scariest performances, I think, in movies. It's so much scarier that you don't know why they're doing this mm-hmm. because it means that they can kind of do anything. Yeah. Uh, and Frank Gearing as Peter. Very good. Way less in the movie. He really doesn't have that much to do, but he's he's very funny and very good. Yeah. Uh, Scream, much larger cast. Huge cast. This is really a who's who of like mid 90s, like teen heartthrobs. Yes. I mean, Drew Barrymore. Yeah, we got to start with Drew. She's so, so good. good. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a good opening. She's like really playing it pretty straight down the line. She's just acting her goddamn balls off. She's so, it helps. She's so charming. I mean, the scene really has to be she's super fun and likes horror movies. And oh no, now it's real. And yeah. she, she hits the switch so well. Yeah. She hits like, she's so funny and so charming the first part. And she's so emotionally real. And, and when she's, you know, dying, mm-hmm. spoilers <laughs> for the first. Two minutes in the movie. Neve Campbell. Great. She's good. I mean, she's, I don't mean this as a criticism, but she's like the least fun of the roles. Right. She's, she's the straight man. Yeah. And she's really, I mean, I like that they take it, take her seriously. I like that she's, I like that she fights back, but I like that she, even like her punching Courtney Cox's character. Oh yeah. Like and her willing, to, she, she's able to be both like a really, uh, um, um, like a victim in a way that like she's been really worn down by all of this. Yeah. And like that way the audience gets worn down, but while also not being just sort of sitting around crying. Yes. 100%. Uh, Rose McGowan. Uh, I love Rose McGowan in this movie. She's very fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, I mean, it's dumb. Like the scene where she's like, oh, am I going to be like, oh, you're going to kill me now when the killer is like going to kill her? Is- I mean, yes, that was kind <laughs> of like a little on the nose, but it was good. Uh, Skeet Ulrich. Uh, uh, he's, he's so unlikable from minute one to me <laughs> that I'm just like, fuck this guy and his creepy hair. I think he's of really, course he was the killer. I know. I think he's really funny in this movie. I don't know if he's like, but like the fact that he's like so like like studly all the time. He's just like, what? You think I'm a killer? I literally yeah. think it's just that he is like 90s sexy in a way that doesn't play anymore. So he plays he plays this kind of creepier. It's also just down to his like hair and makeup and costuming and the way he's acting. Yeah. Is that I think at the time he would have been more of a heartthrob and now you're just like, what who, who the fuck is this <laughs> fucking tool? And then you're like, oh, he's the killer that makes sense. I, but I weirdly I think the fact that we've like grown out of that as being like the pinnacle of sexiness makes the film a little more interesting. Yes. He comes off as way weirder. Yeah. And way less it's less like, oh my God, the hot cool guy is it, now it's like, oh, this really strange, unhinged man. He feels like the when he comes into Neff Campbell's bedroom, he feels menacing. Yeah. From minute one. And I mean, I'm sure that's also what the movie's also kind of doing that on purpose. But I feel like it's less of a fake out now when I'm like, when it's like, we're more, we're like a little bit more evolved in society where like the behavior that he is doing is fucking creepy. Yeah. Which it always was, but now we're better equipped to like see that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, this guy's a fucking creep. Makes sense that he's the fucking murderer in the end. Yeah. He's really pushy about making her have sex and she doesn't really want to. And that's like really gross. Yeah. And it, it plays because he's got such a weird skeezy energy. To yeah. <laughs> Which I, at the time, I guess was sexy. And now we all agree he's kind of gross. Yep. Uh, he's, uh, he's, he's on Riverdale or I guess not anymore because Riverdale ended, but he was on Riverdale for a while. He was a Jughead's dad. Oh, he was like a biker, the leader of a biker gang. I need to watch Riverdale. It sounds so crazy every time you say anything about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the magic of Riverdale. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they get attacked by the Mothman at one point. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. I don't know if they get attacked, but there's a whole plot line about the Mothman. That's about when I, I stopped. Okay. Um, uh, God, sorry. One last Riverdale thing. There's a bit where <laughs> Jughead has to like do mushrooms to like see the Mothman. Oh, and I bet they have a really realistic take on what mushrooms were like, right? I don't even remember that part. I just remember oh. that they can't show him eating. You can't show someone doing drugs on network television. Okay. So he just tells someone, bake it into a, like a burger. I'll eat a burger. Eat a burger? Yeah. Like make a burger with like mushrooms on top. So it's just him it shows him just like eating a burger. <laughs> it's a really good solve for not being yeah. able to show someone eating mushrooms. Yeah. That's really funny. Uh Matthew Lillard. Yeah. A lot of acting. Yeah, he's he's maybe the I don't want to say bad acting, but the for sure the broadest. Oh, yeah. It is the scene where him and Jamie Kennedy are outside, like both telling Neve Campbell the other one is the killer. And he is just like screaming in her face. Like, yeah. oh no, he is cartoonish. It's, I like it though. Yeah. It's really fun. I like the scene where he's just like dying and complaining about dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like, what's your problem? Like, oh, I'm really susceptible to peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Kennedy as the guy who uh, knows all the horror movie tropes. He is a role that can and sometimes is annoying. Yeah. But is also kind of the like, thematic heart of this movie yeah yeah fun. <laughs> yeah and he, just I mean, he is what this movie is about in character form right he is the not the hero of this movie but he's what pulls the, he's the abed of this movie yeah yeah uh courtney cox courtney cox great great, great. like kind of smarmy evil performance yeah it's fun that like i feel like this trope of like the you know the big haired like local news reporters in everyone's face is like somewhat less become a trope just as you know local news has died which yeah is, which is bad um, although maybe not this kind of local news. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if ambulance chasing dying is, you know, something we should mourn. No. Um, but like local newspapers. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, we're on the same page. Yeah. Um, no, she's great. Yeah. It's, she's it's really fun. Good. Yeah. And, uh, David Arquette. Adorable. Yeah. The thing I love about Dewey, they play so well with people in the town just knowing him as Dewey and him trying to be serious and being a cop. It's just like a really well-written character. Yeah, I, that that brings me to what I think. Uh, that's the other actor talk to, uh, and that brings me to what I uh, what I see is sort of like the secret power of this movie mm-hmm. is that the structure of this movie is like shockingly simple. Yeah, there's like the the last set piece in the house is like forty five minutes. Yeah, long, and it's really just a hand. It's really just like there's the opening scene. There's like a little futzing around. There's like one more murder, and then just everyone talking to each other. And then there's like the it's like the opposite of like Back to the Future, where like everything is this big narrative whirl. Yeah, it's not a big puzzle box that's like coming together in the end. Right, but it is a very intricate movie in terms of character. Yes. There's a lot of characters. They all are really well written, really three dimensional. They all mm-hmm. have really specific ways of acting and being in this world, and ways of interacting with each other. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's it's really hard to make really distinctive characters. Part of it is through the actors. And a shout out to Henry Winkler, the actor I forgot to put on. Oh, it's, just- <laughs> it's funny that he's kind of a fake out killer for a second. It feels yeah. like kind of like just a perfunctory, like we're going to have a fake out killer, even though like nobody believes that the audience never, never believes that this is the guy. No. Uh, but it was fun. Well, I he, like he's good in everything. I mean, he's fucking Henry Winkler. Yeah, I like when he expels those guys. Yeah, because yeah, like you should. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's an insane thing to do. Yeah, to like taunt the victim of a serial killer. Yes, you shouldn't be in public school. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Scream is so well intricately written on a character level, that, and that's why even though it's like very very simple on a plot level. Yeah. It works. That's yeah. why you can do like seven reveals in the last five minutes <laughs> because all these characters are like, you, what if you spend the movie writing really interesting characters, it just, and you just put them all in one location, let them fucking blow up at each other. Yeah. Stuff will happen. If you make it happen. Stuff will not happen if you make it happen. That's our full yeah. quote. Yeah. And a uh, shout out to the writer, Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven mm-hmm. directs the shit out of this movie. Yeah. 
really it's like all of his tricks mm-hmm. a lot of great i mean the whole i know it's like i guess it's tropey now but you know like holding the showing the knife in the air mm-hmm. and showing it go down and come back up covering blood that shit is classic it's so funny because it's classic because this is a movie that is playing on the horror tropes but it's also just very good at it yeah and like the sequel especially in the, the drew barrymore stuff he gets to it very gradually it's sort of like this kind of like slow pan from like face to knife mm-hmm. and pans away from the face right as drew barrymore takes the mask off yeah it's like actually a really clever way of getting to just that shot without it just going to it yeah yeah. Uh, her taking the mask off is a really interesting thing because it doesn't actually change anything. We don't actually see, like, we don't really see her reaction to it. She doesn't presumably, have a reaction. What? She doesn't even have a reaction. She doesn't have a reaction, but like, presumably she does know him. Yeah, they're at school together. Yeah, so I'm not sure what it means that he gets unmasked. Because it, then it must be, it's not a plot. There's no plot uh, ramification of him being unmasked. So it's kind of a, it's kind of like a non-narrative thematic thing that he gets unmasked so early on. Which is weird because... They she has a connection to him. They mentioned that like Matthew L- she used to date Matthew Lillard's character. Yeah, and we can like later imply that that's why she was chosen as a, as their first like return victim this year. Yeah, but yeah, but then yeah, they don't do the bit of oh it's you, you know. And my guess would be there's something in the script that actually you know why pull the mask off and have a connection if she wasn't going to say like oh it's you. Yeah, and they even do try and set up Matthew Lillard as a suspect like a few scenes. Oh later. yeah, for sure. So like maybe it was just like when they got to the take they're like when they got to the edit room they're like let's go with the take that's like actually emotional and scary. Because like pausing that beat to have her have the oh it's you is a, takes you out of that pain a little bit. There is also an interesting read of maybe she's not surprised. Oh, that's true. Yeah, like maybe it's like seeing him. It's kind of like well they're talking about later on. It's like the boyfriend always did it, right? Yeah. So like her seeing this is like of course you're the person who kills me. Yeah. I was like romantically linked to you. Yeah. You tried to do this last week. Yeah. <laughs> I really it, should have done like, something about this it. This is the thing that makes the most sense is that I would be killed by you. Right. Oh, and that poor uh, fucking Steve. Steve gets disemboweled. I feel like they just don't really oh, talk yeah. about it much. Oh, yeah, fucking Steve. They never talk about yeah, it. Like Steve he, really caught astray on that one. <laughs> <laughs> as far as he knew, he was just dating Drew Barrymore. He was probably like, fuck yeah. He was pretty, probably pretty amped about that. She's so charming. She's yeah. so winning. She likes horror movies. <laughs> what, a, what a win for Steve. Yeah, and then Steve, real hard paid for that. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of, I think that's like the most violent scene in the movie, just like him getting disemboweled. There's yeah. a lot of stabbings, but it's all very like, you know, ugh. And then yeah, like, it's like know, the blood capsules. Whatever, the, the knife that goes in the hand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of our fa- weirdly favorite things to do on the show is uh, costume as character. We yep. we've, we've we started as a thing we noticed once, and now it's like a, almost every episode we talk about. Yeah, this. we need to have like costume corner, even more than actor corner, really. Actor talk, costume corner. Yeah. Uh, music moment. Music moment. I would like to talk about the music in both these movies. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so costume corner, the ghost face mask. One thing I love about it is that, which they point out specifically in the movie, is that it is a generic costume. Yeah. It is not something that is specific to this guy. It mm-hmm. is just bought in a Halloween store, which A, makes it hard to, like, mechanically on a plot level, makes it hard to figure out who did this. Yeah. And it also allows for, like, the kind of hijinks with the people fucking with her. Mm-hmm. So I, it makes it, like, when Ghostface shows up, you now don't necessarily know if it is actually our killer. Right. And everybody can just, yeah, like you said, anyone can just buy one of those. Yeah. And it also, but it also kind of is a thematic, has a thematic element of kind of a little bit of, like, the banality of evil. Where it's like, yeah. this monster is something that is just out in the world and it, it could be anywhere because it's so easy to attain. So apparently, I, I was curious where it came from. And it was, it actually is, in real life, just like a mask they found, kind of. Oh, really? So they were scouting, and they just saw it hanging on the wall of like a house they were looking at. Huh. Um, and they were like, this this is it. Yeah. And apparently it was owned by like a mask company. Yeah. And like the studio was like, well, we need to make our own so we own it. 
Yeah. And they just kept making and they kept not working. And yeah. eventually Wes Craven had to convince them, like, just buy the fucking rights to this mask. Yeah. Like, I just, this, can't this, this is the mask. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were just like making it a little bit different here and there, but like, it's already such a goofy looking thing. Mm-hmm. You could you fuck it up in any one direction. It's just going to look silly. Yeah. Yeah. It, that has to be a Halloween reference, right? That it's just like a mask you can buy. Because in, in Halloween, he also just like gra- steals a mask. The, uh, the Shatner mask? Yeah. In universe. But of course, in real life, it is a William Shatner mask that has been spray painted white. Yeah. Uh, and like, I think they mess with the hair a little bit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it feels like a Halloween reference to me, but it's, it's just really good. I don't know. It's not scary to me. I'll say that the, the ghost face mask is not scary, but no, I don't think it needs, but to I don't be. think it's supposed to be yeah. in universe. Yeah. Although funny. One of the reads I, one of the articles I read on, from the wiki was that Wes Craven had to convince Harvey Weinstein that it would be scary. That's funny. Like he was like in the, he was like, we, when they were filming it, he was like, we need to get rid of this. Like, the, I'm not scared of this. So he had to, like, Wes Craven had to quickly do, like, a working uh, cut of like, mm-hmm. what they'd done so far, including the opening scene. Oh, uh, okay. And that, like, convinced them it could be scary. Yeah. But that's not... You're right. It's the banal- the banality of evil is why it's scary. The fact that the mask itself is just a mask makes it scarier. Yeah. Uh, they actually do have that really specific Halloween reference where you see him go through the bushes, right? Yes. There's a lot of... A lot of the shots of like you know her walking around and then yeah him creeping in the bushes feels very direct from Halloween. Yeah, but like that's the first time you kind of see him top to bottom, mm-hmm. and he looks goofy. Yeah, because you're seeing his like elbows and knees in this robe. Yeah, it's and it's a little jaunty. Like, yeah. yeah, and then also when he's getting kicked around and falling over and whatnot, it's very funny. So that ma- that mask is kind of like it's interesting how the mask is much scarier when it's in a close up than when it's in a wide shot. Yeah, and I. Uh, you know why I think it doesn't work in a wide shot as much? Why? The costume's got a lot of tails on it. Yes. So when he moves, it's kind of like, whoa, whoa. Like yeah, it looks like around. a child's Halloween costume. <laughs> <laughs> it looks cheap. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I think there's a version of that makes it scarier, but I don't think that movie, th- I mean, this movie's not really like scary, scary. No. It's thrilling. Yeah. And I think that's by design. Mm-hmm. All uh, right. And then Funny Games costumes, they're little weird little white outfits. Yeah. It's like, it, it's very distinctive. It's, it's aristocratic, but also they or do not come off as aristocratic. No. I mean, the very short shorts might also just be like a European versus American fashion thing. Yes. But he kind of comes off as looking a little bit like a little boy. Yes. Uh, His weird long legs, weird long hairy legs. Yeah. Is like a really interesting choice. And also white is a uniquely terrible color to murder people in. Yeah. It's stained. Everything shows up on white. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then the other giant, the other giant costume choice for them is the gloves. Yes. Is there a kind of like um, cotton gloves they have on, mm-hmm. which is it's interesting that they're cotton gloves in that it allows them to come into the scene wearing them from the beginning. And I think that's the thing that keys you in at, immediately that there's something wrong is that they're wearing the gloves to me. Yes. Because for me, just in a horror movie, gloves equals murder. Yeah. Always. 100%. Yeah. Why else? Yeah, why, why else would you wear gloves? Because it's not cold. They're these weird cotton gloves. Yep. At one point, he does say that he has, wears them because of eczema, which is interesting. It's when um, he's walking around with Anna with the dog, and their neighbors come in with the with the boat. Right. And she has to pretend to be like yes. good. And yeah, and he is like constantly like, oh, I'm here too. Yeah. And then later on, that's how he gets in with the next family. Mm-hmm. Um, God, that's such a good beat. It's a, Like you said, this is such a really tightly constructed horror movie. Like the yeah. buildup. Yeah, is so classic here. Like when you like see them, him with Paul with the other family from a distance, mm-hmm. and like 
baby George is like, oh, where's my friend, the kid I used to play with? Why isn't she here? Yeah. You know, and then they come back around like, oh, I'm Paul. And he's just like, oh, hi, I'm Paul. You know? Yeah, yeah. That makes it a good reveal in retrospect. You're like, oh, they were doing the same thing with that family. It's it's like in the thing with the the opening of the thing, the thing with the dog and the Norwegian guys in the helicopter. It's the exact same thing. It's just like your brain knows that the movie's doing. Yeah. And it's like, you're like, oh, something bad has already happened, which means something bad will happen again. What will it be? And yeah. And then it's also in... You kind of get a second horror story by in in its negative in that once you have seen the the events of this movie, you realize, oh my god, this all happened before. Yeah, and also it's going to happen again. Yeah, it's a sequel. Yeah, which a thing that both Scream and Funny Games do. Mm-hmm. Well, they they fuck with the idea of it being a sequel. Well, actually, yeah, because um, yeah, in Scream, the mother was murdered. Yeah, by and, yeah, and they even say I think in their big like manic speech of like you got to have a sequel, you yeah. know, because we're gonna do it again. Yeah, and in funny games, it's not so much a sequel, more of a uh, you know we're about to get started killing again mm-hmm. with the look to the camera and going to the new house. Yeah, um, uh, music moment. Yeah, uh, I think the soundtracks of both these movies are really good. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, funny games has the craziest smash into a needle drop. With the opening credits. Yes. You know, big wide like helicopter shot. Yeah. Tracking a car, their mm-hmm. car. And you go into the house and then they just like really loud screaming metal. Yeah. But then it's even more of a big, uh, it's a contrast because what they're doing in the car is that they're playing classical or they're playing opera or classical music. Opera, I think. They're playing opera and they're trying to guess what the songs are with each other. Yeah. It's like a very like... Rich, fancy people game that yeah. they're playing. <laughs> but what we hear is this just thrashing, yeah. well, we're, violent music. Well, we're here. Yeah, we're hearing the opera up until you see funny games and then right. it flips. Yeah. And it also becomes, it goes from diegetic music to non diegetic music. Yes. But then that music is diegetic later because he plays the same song in the house. Exactly. It's like this, his, like, oh, I'm tracking you, like, the, I'm the killer, I'm catching up to you, like, scary music. Yeah. And he's also, us- I think he's using it to cover his own footsteps. Yes. Yeah, and he play and it plays it's over the end credits when he looks at camera and it's like a still shot of his face and the movie ends. Yeah, and when that like flips to non diegetic and I guess then you can be like, is this song the song of these two killers? Like, is it yeah. in is it tied to them? And then if we're looking at like a hyper metatextual read on this, is like was that was that song like on the disc in the player or is it just by the fact that he is there he's able to just like make this happen? Right, like that's the thing of like. It, it could have just been on the player, but like the movie is kind of, kind of tips its hand that like the the world will break so that Paul can do what he wants. Yeah, because it's not necessarily in. We don't know the other family very well, right. but it doesn't. This is like this like rich upper crusty. They lake, have like a lake, vacation lake like house. yacht people, yeah. right? The, you don't expect the yacht people to have a CD of this like screamo music, right? And especially not one that's just in the player ready to go. Yeah, just like click. Right, yeah, they were just listening to that over dinner. Yeah. So either these guys that just this other family is much more interesting than we originally thought. <laughs> they have layers. Yeah. <laughs> or it's just that he is this force that just breaks the world that he is in, which we know, like you just said, we yes. know that because he rebounds the movie. Yeah, he is that. And then he's it's just like Hanukkah. Like Hanukkah, I think that's he's kind of tipping his hand early there with like he's going to break the world of this moment by mm-hmm. playing the screamo music when they're supposed to be listening to opera. And Paul can do it too because Paul's like him. But yeah. Paul's also us. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh no. We are, we are Paul. Um and music in Scream. I wanted yeah. to say the the score is very good. Yeah. By Marco Beltrami, just like the actual like oh no scary things are happening music. Mm-hmm. But also cool fucking soundtrack on this movie. Oh yeah, for sure. It's great. Yeah. Uh, Red Right Hand by Nick Cave. It was funny to see that hear that because it is the theme song for Peaky Blinders. 
Oh, I didn't it's know the, that. It's the opening credit song for Peaky Blinders. And I was like, listening, I was like, what do I know this from? Like, I know the song very well from something. I was like, oh my God, it's Peaky Blinders. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah. I just know it as, I'm a big Nick Cave fan. It's a good song. Yeah, and it's also funny because I saw Scream so late in life that I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's, a, there's a bit where when they're like all like leaving school, they have the song that's like, say a prayer for the youth of America. Right. Is a song. It's kind of like just more of that theme of like, the kids are not all right mm-hmm. of it all. Although really it's just these two bad kids. Yeah. Like you can't play. The other yeah. kids seem relatively fine. I mean, other than the ones who are like, let's leave this house party to look at our principal's dead body. And also the ones who are like, let's put on costumes and pretend and like act like murder. Maybe all these kids are psychopaths oh, yeah. in school. Actually, never mind. They're all, yeah, everyone but Neve Campbell and uh, Rose McGowan and Jamie Kennedy are the fucking worst. Yeah. Every other- and even Jamie Kennedy is pushing it a little bit. He's just a nerd who likes movies yeah. and has a crush on Neve Campbell. Yeah, true. There's no, I mean, there's nothing wrong there. It's not like he was like creepy to her. No. He's just like, oh, bomber, she's now not single again. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. Respectable. Fair. All right. <laughs> all right. All right. We're back. We're, we're back, back on his side. I mean, well, on his character side. Yeah. I don't know anything about Jamie Kennedy in real life. No, no. Um, I actually looked up what he'd been in recently. He's in a Rovers Wade, like, Christian dramatic movie. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh oh. With Stacey Dash. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> And that's why you never Google anyone from the 90s. Nope. <laughs> Hard <Fair>. rule. <laughs> that's like, that needs to be like, if we write a horror movie, it's like, you can't Google him. He was born in the 90s. We're going to find out something terrible about him. Then he turns out to be the killer because you Googled him. Yeah. <laughs> if we'd only Googled him, we would have known. <laughs> yeah. Or is it that it is the Googling that makes him bad? Well, he like he senses it. He's like, oh, here he, I like, go. Yeah, he becomes evil because the because of the googling, which is our title. The googling. The googling. <laughs> yeah, there's not like a big corporation that would get on your case about that. It's a number. Fucked up. <laughs> googling. Well, fuck. Yeah, you're right. I, I think, think they might verb. have the verb trademarked. Yeah, the number. Yeah, the, the number not so much. But then you'd have to prove that it's about the number, not the search engine. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to write a movie about. A number? A number. I mean, there's eight and a half. Another there's, number 23. There's nine. There's number 20. It's doable. There's there's both nines. There's nine the musical and nine the movie about like the little bag man. Okay, so we're going to write a movie <laughs> called Google, and everyone's going to think it is the story of Google the search engine, and it's going to be like the social network, but it's actually just about the number. It, would this be good for search optimization for your movie or not? Because because no one's going to Google Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So maybe- They might ask Jeeves Google, but that's your, that's the wrong audience. <laughs> Does Ask Jeeves still exist? I think it's ask.com. Uh, that makes more sense. They might bang it. They might bing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so really, we should make a movie called Bing. <laughs> the Chandler Bing story. The Chandler Bing story. <laughs> then you get sued twice. They're like, Joey didn't work. <laughs> Joey didn't work, but Bing. Bing. The issue was it was the wrong spinoff. Yeah. Ross. Uh, fuck that show. <laughs> that would be very similar to Funny Games. <laughs> it's just Ross going into people's houses and murdering them. I would believe it. I would believe that Ross Geller would be a serial killer oh, in his spinoff God. show. Imagine David Schwimmer as Paul... In funny games. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I can readily. <laughs> uh it's 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 Michael Pitt in the American remake for what it's worth. Which is a perfect cast casting yeah. choice. Yeah, you, I I've seen clips he's very I've seen the egg scene in the remake. Oh interesting. Oh, it's still eggs. Yeah, it's each, it's just shot for shot, right? It's literally shot for shot, just different American actors. Yeah. And Hanukkah, I mean he said he just wanted a bigger reach. He would have done the original in English if he could have. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh Tim Roth and Naomi Watts at the other ones great very good great acting great actors great actors i'm sure they're great in that too yeah i haven't seen it but probably because i think 
uh, after watching the Bad News Bears remake and it just like weirdly coloring my experience of the first one, I think it was better that I didn't see the remake. But I'll probably watch it after this. Yeah, I mean, in this case, it, it I think it's an interesting element. It's just it, I would have watched it ahead of this one, except it wasn't available on streaming. And also, uh, Honey Games is a harrowing it's a lot. experience. It's a lot twice. Yeah. I, I did that once with uh, Old Boy by accident. I watched. <laughs> oh, you it. watched the remake. I watched the original. Uh, oh, no, just the Old Boy twice in like two days. Oh, okay. I watched it on like the Tuesday before school started one year, and yeah. then Movie Club met the next day to decide what our first movie is going to be, and the, we, they decided they voted on Old Boy. So I watched it again the next day. <laughs> Another movie that is exhausting emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> it, if it was the next day, you could have just been like, "Hey, I already watched this." No, I did, but it was like we voted. Yeah, it was a very democratic. Oh, you're uh, like watching it in person in movie club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't. We didn't go home and watch it. We all like got gathered and watched it and then talked about yeah, it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And stuff. It was all great. Right. Yeah, good times. Yeah, yeah. Last last thoughts on these movies on meta horror. I mean, meta-ness. it's funny because meta meta movies, meta commentary, meta narratives is such a kind of slippery concept that can easily fall into just being too cool for school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess like the. I don't know what is why why are these movies successful as meta movies? Is it like that they actually have something to say other than look how smart we are? Often we do movies that are doing the same thing slightly differently. Mm-hmm. These are both movies that are doing very different things, but yeah. still being meta horror. Like Funny Games, <laughs> they're doing very different things, slightly the same. <laughs> right. Like meta, like Funny Games is very much like trying to use the meta element to break the idea of a horror movie at all. Yeah. Basically, to make you complicit in the violence and question why these movies exist and yeah. what we what we as a like species want out of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, Scream is more challenging the fandom a little bit and like breaking the rules and like using the knowledge of the tropes to actually create a less tropey, more groundbreaking movie. Yeah. Scream is using the meta element to make a better horror movie. Yeah. And Funny Games is using the meta element to make like, the ur horror movie, the proto horror <laughs> movie, like the most like platonic ideal of a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's my take. Uh, Cooper, you want like to play a game? a game? Oh, fucking games. Yeah, yeah. funny games. We're like going to play some funny games. Would you like to play a game? It's a thing they say constantly in both funny game and scream. Yeah. All right, what's the what's We the are playing the letterbox list game. It is kind of like a variant of catchphrase. I am going to find a user-generated list on Letterbox that contains one of the movies that we watched for this episode, and I'm going to try to get Josh to guess as many movies from the list as possible, but I am not allowed to say titles, directors, actors, or quotes. And uh, the list is it has funny games in it. It is psychosexual dramas, nihilistic fever dreams, and surrealism with a touch of humor. Weirdly, I feel like that must be a pretty big list. Eighteen hundred and forty-one movies. <laughs> yeah, it's like that seems like really specific, but also that's like all of European art cinema. So yeah, okay, let's let's fucking go. So I'm uh, I'm sorting it at in by list order, but it's only movies I've seen. Okay, uh, three, two, one, go. Movie by a popular TV director who it's about two women. One of them is obsessed with the other drive. one. Yeah, uh, guy plays chess with death. Seven Seal. A uh, guy ha- guy falls down off a building. There's uh, a blonde woman and a brunette woman. Is by like the most famous like thriller director. Oh 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 Vertigo. Yeah, uh, a lot of a lot of Russian dialogue. It's got a guy who gets killed with a penis statue, or a girl gets killed with a penis oh, statue. Oh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, uh, it is a Russian movie. It is um, very Stalker? what uh, Stalker. Yeah. Um, it's a movie by the most famous uh, body horror director. Uh, has a lot of stuff with TVs. Oh, Videodrome? Yeah. Uh, guy breathes into a gas mask. It's a horror movie. 
He breaks into the gas mask and he's very creepy. It's by the same director as the earlier movie that does TV. Oh, 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 oh. Fucking Blue Velvet. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy that... Uh, there's a puzzle box. Is a, is a Fucking Cenobite uh, Hellraiser. Yeah. Uh, it is another movie by that same director, but it is the movie, ver- movie of the TV show. Uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me? Yeah. Uh, another movie by that director... Um, I'm not uh, gonna be able to do the it. Elephant Man. No. Dune. Oh, no. We'll do. Okay. Do no. It's Lost a Lost cri- Highway. Yes. Okay. Next one. It's a Christmas movie with sex parties. Oh, uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Uh, the best cyberpunk movie. Uh, oh, oh, The Matrix. Yeah. Uh, it is an extremely complicated movie. Next time. Okay. There's twelve. 12. We did it. <laughs> we, blew, my we blew our <laughs> levels. <laughs> I was so excited. I think that is a record for us. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, the fact that there was so much David Lynch fucking carried us yeah, yeah. helped a lot. <laughs> yeah, when when you were gonna skip it, I'm like, there's not that many. I know I can do this. <laughs> yeah. I can I know it's not straight story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh I it's good that we ended when we did because we were at Synecdoche, New York, which uh, I was going to struggle with a little bit. Tough to describe. Yeah, you would have just had to say like the most meta. I don't even but then meta it's like he's making a city and he's making a fake city in a city. Maybe you'd get it from that. Maybe. Maybe it's tough. That's a tough one. But the next one would be easy because I would just say uh guy gets his dick broken, then comes blood. Really? That's not enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I haven't seen this. Antichrist. Movie. I have not seen Antichrist. You should see Antichrist. I actually think Antichrist is a good movie. Based on how you just described it, I don't really want to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you should see it. It's really crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's Lars von Trier, so there's a lot of the just being shocking for shocking for the sake of being shocking. But there's it's also contained in a kind of interesting movie. Yeah, I, I've actually never seen a Lars von Trier movie. Uh, oh. I never got around to it. I mean, I'm not like anti- I mean, apparently he's a kind of a huge dick in your life, but I'm not yeah. like avoiding it. And I also just, kind of in his movies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've always wanted to see Melancholia. Melancholia is very good. That's, I think if there's one Lars von Trier movie you're going to see, it's Melancholia because it's kind of maybe the least von Trier-y. Right. It's the one that's the less like Enfant Terrible. Yeah. The, mo- the most like terrible. I'm just trying to make a good movie here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is funny. That's the one that he was at Cannes and got canceled for saying he's a Nazi. <laughs> his, <laughs> least in, in, his least combative movie. God damn it. <laughs> Yeah, because also, I mean, his like dogma movies are maybe like the more influential ones. Yeah. Uh, I've seen bits of um, The Idiots, and yeah. I've seen bits of some of the other ones, and I've seen bits of Dogville. Yeah, I've been meaning to see Dogville. Dogville is good. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, of the dogma directors, I think, I, I mean, I've seen some Tom, Tom Vinterberg movies, but I think that the ones I've seen are, I guess, I mean, I've seen another round, but that's not. He's not doing dogma stuff anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just Vinterberg came out of that too. Long yeah, yeah. Came out of that too. Dogma is kind of interesting. It it's almost like the the rules, the the movement of dogma itself is almost more interesting than the movies that came out of it. Yeah, because the movies that came out of it, by the nature of the rules of Dogma ninety five, are uh, pretty stark and kind of hard to watch. Yeah, but, but it's an interesting like theory. I guess we should explain this at all. A bunch of Danish director Danish yeah directors were like, let's only make movies using very limited rules on how to make them. And it's things like they could only use natural lighting was a big one mm-hmm. and then they could only um i think they could only use diegetic music i think that was one of them there's a lot of very specific rules it's yeah it's a lot of like kind of quote real it moves for like quote realism yeah um and then the other interesting aspect of dogma was that uh, it's d-o-g-m-e yeah um the other interesting aspect is that if they ever broke the rules they had to release like a statement saying which rules they broke yeah that's fun yeah and then they all just kind of grew up and now they make movies yeah yeah but just good for, you know hey Good on them for trying something. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cooper, what's the people do at home? Rate, review, subscribe. Follow us on TikTok. Follow us on Instagram. HBLB podcast for both.
That's it. Tell your people. Tell your friends. Yeah. Tell your mom. Tell your enemies. All right. (laughs) Goodbye forever. Bye forever.